1: A weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be looking at the great polling disaster of 2015, why Labour lost the general election, and how David Cameron is conducting his EU renegotiations. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political columnist Philip Stevens and Janine Ganesh, chief political correspondent Jim Picard, and one of the few posters who actually called the election right, Matt Singh, the founder of Number Crunch Politics. So we'll begin by looking at David Cameron's EU renegotiations, which should be wrapping up pretty soon and continue to occupy the news agenda. In the latest FT Weekend magazine, George Parker looks exactly how the Prime Minister is trying to get a better deal for Britain, what he got wrong, what he's getting right and what is going to happen next. So George, um, what's the current state of the renegotiations? Does David Cameron know what he's going to get and when can we expect a deal to be made?
2: Well, we're obviously into the end game of the negotiations in Brussels, and we're expecting at the beginning of February the officials doing the behind the scenes work and the European machine, the council and the commission to produce final proposals on how they're going to settle what they call the the British problem over in Brussels. So we're into the final stages. I mean, David Cameron hopes uh, that he'll get a deal at the European summit on the 18th and 19th of February, and we know what the parameters of that deal will be. Then he hopes to put this to the cabinet very shortly afterwards, maybe within 48 hours of him getting the deal and then push straight ahead to a referendum, probably in June, with a date penciled in for June the 23rd. That's the plan. Um, But we had David Cameron in Davos this week saying that things don't necessarily go to plan. He's got all the time in the world. He's promised a referendum by the end of 2017. So what's the rush? Um, And that reflects partly the fact that this is a very legally technical, difficult uh, negotiation to pull off. And secondly, he doesn't want to make it look like it's a piece of cake. He wants to show to people back home, particularly in his own party, this is a really tough deal he's trying to strike. He doesn't want to make it look, look like it's too easy.
3: Yeah, I think um, I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to believe that this has been a really, really tough negotiation. And I think that's because the British have have basically asked for what they thought they could get. That's not to say that some of the things won't be useful. But I think the key thing for Cameron is to get the deal In February. And it's interesting. I think the the Germans, the French and the Italians and others are saying, look, we want to deal quickly as well. Let's get this off the table. There can always be accidents. But the plan is, yes, a deal in February, followed by the referendum in late June.
1: Because um, Philip, the, the issue clearly is that this is of great importance to David Cameron and the British government. But Europe's got far bigger and other problems it's trying to solve at the moment. You know, so how much of this is seen as a hindrance to trying to solve borders, the migration crisis, the economy, all those sorts of things?
3: Well, what you hear from leaders of other European governments is a sort of what you get is a sort of deep sigh and. We've got problems enough, they say. Why is Britain inflicting this on us at this point? On the other hand, I think it's fair to say most European leaders, if not all, realise that losing Britain from Europe would not only be bad in my view, for Britain, but would also be bad for Europe. It would be a vote of no confidence. It could create a big economic shock within Europe as well as in Britain. And it would be seen by those outside Europe as an indication that basically the whole European project is beginning to unravel.
1: George, we've often talked about David Cameron as the SA Crisis Prime Minister, the man who gets to it right at the last moment and he suddenly can find the passion and pump himself up to win the election, win the Scottish referendum. Is that going to happen with these renegotiations? Because at first it didn't all seem to be going that well for him.
2: Yeah, I think the SA Crisis Prime Minister is exactly the right way to put it. Look, he gave the offer of a referendum in 2013 under huge pressure from his own party with UKIP breathing down his neck. He didn't want to offer a referendum and it was a political fix to get him through to the next election. And in the course of researching my magazine piece for the FT, you know, I spoke to senior Tories who said, look, we thought it'd be a nice problem to have because frankly, they didn't think they were going to win the 2015 election. They didn't think they'd have to deliver it. And suddenly this problem was staring them right in the face. So David Cameron, who made a number of serious mistakes on the European front in his first term, particularly being over-reliant on Angela Merkel to help him deliver deals, which didn't work out particularly well for him terrible relations with François Hollande, the French president. He tried to block the appointment of Jean-Claude Juncker as president of the European Commission, who's a key player in these negotiations. So he had three very personal relationships there which needed to be fixed in this parliament. And he's had to go about doing that very quickly. Over the last six months, he's embarked on this extraordinary tour of European capitals. He's heeded Angela Merkel's advice and tried to find new friends in Europe outside of Berlin. He exploited, I think, very ably the terrible news in France, the terrorist attacks, to be right at François Hollande's side and say, look, when we talk about the economy, we disagree. But when we talk about international affairs and fighting terrorism, we can find common ground. I think that's been really important in this negotiation. And finally, with Mr. Juncker, he's just had to eat a whole lot of humble pie to try and fix that relationship.
1: As Philip, as you've said in your um, column in the FT this week, you make the argument of why Brexit would be a very bad thing for Britain. But if Britain does stay in the EU, what will its relationship be like with the rest of you? The Is there going to be any kind of looking down our nose? Is it all the hassle? And how will David Cameron's relationship be with European leaders in the future?
3: Well, I think initially... Um, there'll be a huge sigh of relief all round. And I think there will be scope for the relationship to get better. And as George said, for Britain and France, for example, to deepen their relationship, their military security relationship, and for Britain to take a sort of rather high, a, a, a bigger role in some of the issues like Ukraine, which it stood back from. But I don't think, I think, you know, for many in Britain, this is as much an emotional as a sort of practical question. There are a lot of people in Britain who will always feel uncomfortable as being part of this European entity. And I think if David Cameron hopes that this will settle the question for a generation, I think he's mistaken. Europe's going to change. Britain's going to change. There could be more challenges. So it will take it off the table. I think the real problem for David Cameron, is that we get something as we did in Scotland, where the SNP lost the referendum, but in a way won the political battle. And that's what I think will worry him about this
1: referendum. You've just picked up on something there that is a big problem for those campaigning for Britain to remain in. And that is passion. And because the people who want Brexit have been campaigning for 10, 20 years something they believe in. And their argument is very much, you know, Britain can be free. Britain can stand alone again. But when you throw facts at them, it's not always that simple. You know, can that case be made successfully, do you think, for Britain to stay in with passion?
3: Well, I think actually, to be fair, I think the Brexit case will wilt a little under scrutiny because the Brexit camp is not one camp, it's three or four different camps. And as soon as the referendum campaign starts, I think, people will be saying, look, this isn't just about whether we should be in or out of Europe. It's what are the alternatives? The problem that Alex Salmond had in Scotland once the campaign got underway was that he had to spell out what he would do. Now, do the Brexit camp want us to be like Norway, outside the EU, but signing up to all the rules? Or do they want to be totally free, like Singapore, the fact is, they can't agree among themselves. So I think the campaign will expose divisions in the Brexit camp along with their passion.
1: George, the Prime Minister has been at Davos this week, the World Economic Forum, and he gave this speech about the EU referendum and he's now encouraging businesses to speak out because of six months ago, he said, actually, can you just keep quiet until the renegotiation is done? And he's now had a complete U-turn and just on time, we hear that Goldman Sachs are giving a nice lot of money to the in-campaign. How does this change the dynamic? Are we going to see more businesses, do you think? And is this a good thing to see... And the blighted bankers give money to the in-campaign.
2: Well, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes to line business up to fire as opening barrage. The moment the referendum campaign starts, David Cameron wants a whole load of business leaders to speak out. And behind the scenes, that's the kind of thing that Downing Street and the in-campaign have been working up. There's a danger, I think you're right, if the in-campaign becomes too closely associated with big finance, with big companies. It starts to look like an elite campaign. And, as you say, you know, the people we know who have given large amounts of money to the in campaign are hedge fund managers, and now we hear u s investment banks they 're not some of the groups that are, you know in popular opinion at least are the most likely to sway, sway their points of view so I think it's dangerous but on the other hand David Cameron does need to be able to make the business case there's been a bit of speculation at Westminster as, as you know that Sajid Javid the business secretary might end up joining the Brexit campaign or indeed might even be encouraged to join the Brexit campaign by George Osborne as a means of reconciling the party after the campaign's over and bringing him back into the fold. I think that's too clever by half, I don't think that personally that's going to happen because if your case is about business, do you really want your business secretary to be on the other side of the case?
3: I think George is right. You do need business on side, but you don't want them front and centre in the campaign. I think that the Leave campaigns, plural, are going to focus not just on the EU, but they're going to focus on the establishment. Do you want to bash the elites? Do you want to get back at the bankers? Do you want to um, tell business leaders what you think of them? So I think while it's important to have business in the background and reminding people that their pay and their jobs may depend on staying in. The in campaign, the stay campaign really does have to mobilise younger groups of people, got to mobilise, nothing else, women who really are treated much of the time as absent from this campaign. So yes, they need the money, they should take the money, but no, don't have business leaders front and centre throughout the campaign.
2: Yeah, we saw a bit of that in Ireland when they were trying to ratify the Lisbon Treaty, that you had an elite campaign where you had the government, the big business, you had the media all campaigning to ratify the treaty and a populist insurgency campaign to reject the treaty,
1: which actually won. And now on to the most exciting of all political topics polling. The initial result of an independent inquiry into why nearly all of the posters got the 2015 election wrong came out this week and the answer it seemed was sampling. We'll come on to what all that means in a moment but we also had another report out on why Labour lost the general election and the answer to that one essentially seems to be Ed Miliband even if the party doesn't want to quite admit it. But first polling I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Singh from Number Crunch Politics who is something of a pop star in Westminster because he was one of the few people who called the election right. So, Matt, what did you make of the polling inquiries report? Um, And do you think polling can be trusted again? Well, the
4: report itself didn't contain any huge surprises because over the eight months or so since the election, there's been an awful lot of work done by various people to try and understand what happened. And I think it's fair to say the majority of the research has sort of converged on the sample being the culprit. There's obviously been a number of things talked
1: about, but the the sampling error is the main thing. And just as in, you mean that how the posters represent the electorate for our listeners who don't quite know what sampling means. Sure,
4: yeah. So the posters, obviously, they don't ask everyone what they think. They choose a sample of... At least a 1,000 people, 1,000 or 2,000 is typical, and that's fine. You can get an accurate estimate of public opinion that way, but the sample has to be representative of the population or made representative through the various adjustments and weighting techniques that they use. And it seems on that occasion that's um, somewhere along the line something
1: has, has gone wrong with that. Jadan and Ganesh, um, obviously a lot of the political coverage in the election was dictated by the polling. We had a huge number of polls, constituency level, national levels, and there was every day we had new polls. One of the questions this week, did polling lose Labour the election?
0: No, I think polling companies can only be held accountable for what they put out, and that was flawed, and they should uh, get a kicking for that. But I've seen people try, as you suggest, to blame polling companies for therefore distorting the way politics operated for the last year or two of the parliament. And you know, had the polling been more accurate, Ed Miliband might have been removed by the Labour Party. Voters were irrationally worried about things that were never likely in the first place, like a Labour-SNP coalition. It is not up to polling companies to determine how journalists and political parties and strategists respond to the polls. That is entirely within our control. And we chose to overreact, but treat polls as absolutely central source material to inform every journalistic decision and every strategic decision by the political parties themselves. So I think there's a bit of a cop out on in, in that sense. I am intrigued about the, the counterfactual, though, that had we known in, say, 2013-14, that Labour were actually substantially behind the Conservatives, not level pegging or, or fractionally ahead, how that would have changed things and whether a leadership putsch would have been launched against the leader of the opposition.
1: Well, this is a very interesting question. It's one um, I'm going to put to Jim Picard here, um, who's our chief political correspondent. Um, do you think Labour would have found the guts to get rid of Miliband? Because there was talks getting rid of him in 2011, 2014, 2013, pretty much all the time there was talk of should Ed be removed, will Ed be removed, and there were various attempted pushes. If the polling had shown an accurate representation of what was happening, do you think he would have gone? I think it would have been more likely, but I don't think it would have been inevitable or even
5: very likely, because the problem is that the mechanism of getting rid of a Labour leader is really difficult. And the main thing is not only do you need a huge number of Labour MPs to come forward and say, we want this person to go, but they have to name the alternative. And there was never a clear single alternative to Ed Miliband, who everyone would have coalesced behind. And the closest they got was Alan Johnson... Alan Johnson himself didn 't want to do it, and therefore that made that uh, much more difficult. going back to the polls thing i mean one one thing I think people haven 't pointed out is that they suggest well now we shouldn 't rely on opinion polls anymore because they were wrong last time, and the issue as a journalist is you can go anywhere around the country and All of us went out. I was in Glasgow, I was in East Anglia, I was in the North West. And you can go out and you can talk to loads of people. You can talk to 20 people, 30 people, 10 people, 50 people. You're never going to get anywhere near what a pollster can do. And you also tend to get people who aren't at work, people who aren't old people behind curtains or in bed. So basically, opinion polls are the best we've got, and that's going to be the, the truth for a long time.
1: Because, Matt, we've had these sort of slightly odd ideas that opinion polls should not be allowed in the six month run up to an election. I believe there's a Labour peer, I can't quite remember who it is, Lord Folkes, yes, who's proposing a piece of legislation um, to outlaw opinion polls. You know, do you think there's any merit in that? And do you think, and you know, when we get to the 2020 election, what role will polls play?
4: Well, to me, it seems like a strange thing to do because, for one, it's unenforceable. I mean, you can enforce that law in Britain, but, I mean, there's nothing to stop an overseas newspaper from doing it. You would also have the problem that people could do these things privately uh, and not put them out. And then, as I'm sure your listeners will be um, aware, the the effects on financial markets. So, for example, if, if, say, some hedge fund gets hold of a poll... And tries to start doing stuff, and market makers aren't aware of it. They're going to start, you know, causing disruption in markets. I was actually on a trading desk in the 2010 election, you know, when things were crazy, and in that situation, it could have been quite, um, quite nasty. But I think more broadly, it doesn't really seem like it would achieve the purpose it's meant to achieve. Because if polls are wrong and they create a false narrative, fine. You know, we can debate the the effects of that, but. If we didn't have polls, the narrative could also be wrong and that too would have similar effects. I mean, a really good example would be the the olden by-election. We didn't have any polls and people were thinking, you know, this is too close to call and it turned out Labour won by, I think it was 39 points in the end. And, And then you get into all sorts of other things like people releasing canvas data and saying, our private polling shows this. So I don't think it's right,
1: I don't think it's impossible and I don't think it would work. And of course, one last thing on the polling, all our listeners will be wondering, how did you get it right? Well, what I did was
4: to take data aside from just the top line numbers of the standard who will you vote for question. So I looked at all of the things that were available. So leader ratings, local election results, internal data within the, the polls themselves and the historical patterns to try and see if there was any way that you could cross check polls in a way of, either directly predicting whether they're going to fail or just can't with a better way of, or more reliable way of predicting results. And the striking thing was that it wasn't that it was one thing or two things or even most things in that that were suggesting that the consensus was wrong and that the Conservatives were going to win. It was that everything apart from the headline numbers was suggesting a, a Conservative victory. So it was basically just the,
1: the strength and the consistency of the evidence that made me as sure as I was. So, Jim, on to the other um, inquiry report this week, which was the Beckett report. Margaret Beckett, former deputy leader of the Labour Party, has been investigating why Labour lost the election. We've had many theories and hypotheses and opinions on this, but now we have a formal document that explains what it is. And the thing that struck me the most, as I said earlier, was the lack of blame on Ed Miliband, despite the fact he seemed to play a big role in Labour losing. What did you make of the inquiry? And so what were its findings?
5: It's quite a long report. It goes on for 30 35 pages, and somewhere towards the end of those 35 pages, it gets to what do people on the doorstep tell us? And they said to these thousands of of Labour people researching this since last summer that they voted uh, for the Tories and not for Labour because of the economy. Because Labour was seen as weak on the economy. They thought Miliband was a weak leader. They feared this idea of the SNP working uh, hand in glove with Labour in a sort of weak coalition. And they also didn't think that Labour had the right policies or was saying the right things on immigration and welfare. And there you have what the general public is telling the Labour Party went wrong for Labour. And yet the Beckett report somehow skirts around this and suggests that it's the media's fault, it's the Tories' fault... It was all terribly difficult. It was an uphill struggle all along. Maybe it was the Lib Dems' fault. Um, it kind of reminds me of that Mark Twain quote about the, the voters have spoken, the bastards. <laughs> so I'm not quite clear whether the the new leadership in particular is going to take much away from what what the voters were telling. Margaret Beckett's
1: people. Because this is the key thing Janan about what it means for the next election for Labour because you would assume they'd look at 2015, think right this is what we've got wrong, this is what our researchers said, how do we now get it right? But as as Jim just said, you know blaming the media is something is the just what Jeremy Corbyn's people are doing as well. So how is Labour going to listen to this, do you think? And do you think this is going to make them any more likely to win in 2020?
0: No, I think I'm just astonished at Margaret Beckett who is not a joke figure, a former foreign secretary, put her name to that report. I thought it was a whitewash, had all the signs of having about three quarters of it redacted um, or removed in advance by people leaning on her. Uh, It completely whitewashes the leadership question, the, the catastrophic ratings that Ed Miliband had really from day one. I mean, I've got a quite reductionist view of politics that every general election is determined at the moment of the previous party leadership elections. And therefore, The 2015 election was decided by September 25th, 2010, when they chose Ed Miliband. And it was obvious it would be an Ed versus David Cameron election. So the lesson I would infer from the past five years uh, is get your leadership elections absolutely right. You can afford to get a lot of lot of other stuff wrong and employ slightly weak strategists and have not a great party infrastructure. If your front man or front woman is a plausible prime minister, they got that wrong in 2010. They've chosen not just to not learn that lesson in 2015, but to compound it uh, ten times over by choosing someone who I think anyone with any political judgment must know is not a plausible prime minister. That's Jeremy Corbyn. So it's not a question of you know the extent to which they've learned. They've they've headed off in the exact opposite direction that to to where the logic is at a rate of knots.
1: And then finally, very briefly, Jim, how has this report been received by Team Corbyn? What's the general mood among the leadership at the moment?
5: Well, as jan was saying, it's a report that you can read anything to you'd like. And they're quite content to pick out the bit that says that the left-wing policies under Ed Miliband were the most popular. And they're ignoring the possibility that without a credible economic message and trust from the public, you can offer them all sorts of goodies, but they don't believe in you and they don't vote for you.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next week for the next instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.
5: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.